0: and welcome to another episode of God is Not a Theory with Ken Fish. I'm your host, Grant Pemberton, and on today's episode, we've got a very special guest. Uh, Mr. Reverend, amazing apostle, all of those things, uh, Bill Johnson, uh, is joining us today, and uh, it's going to be a very exciting day. So without further ado, Ken, why don't you introduce us to this very special guest?
1: I'm going to, and uh, you know, Grant, when we had Francis Chan on a few weeks ago, you said you were going fanboy. I think you just did it again.
0: <laughs> uh,
1: for everybody who's listening, uh, we've got uh, the Bill Johnson on the show with us today. And Bill, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. And I know you've got a lot a lot going on personally as well as at the church. So uh, we just are so appreciative that you're uh, taking time to be with us.
2: It's an honor, always.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I wanted to have a conversation about you and kind of where things are going in the world. Um, and so, you know, today I thought we would maybe go into your background. You've shared at different times. I've heard you speak about some of this, but there's there's every time I've heard you talk, there's been a little chink here or there where I thought I'd like to know some more. So I I thought we might start with some okay. of that. All right. And uh, so, you know, it, it's widely known that you're a fifth generation pastor, but I was wondering if you could share with us a little bit how you received your own personal calling to ministry, and given that you came out of what for you was four generations of preceding uh, pastoral life, which would have taken you back to your great-great grandfather, how did you uh, hear the calling through the general noise of family expectations and all of that that you know you should go into ministry? How did how did that all unfold for you, and when did it unfold?
2: Um, My story is probably a little bit different. Uh, Number one, my parents never once, never once even brought up the subject, the possibility of me going into ministry. It was never, there was zero pressure there was also zero expectation. They were, their goal for me was to get to heaven, not to be in, in any kind of ministry. So uh, my brother, they thought he would he would go into ministry. He's 10 years younger than I am, uh, but they never expected, or it was never a conversation. And uh, as a result, um, I always felt the liberty and freedom to choose. And what happened in, in me coming to that place of absolute surrender to Jesus, you know I, I i received the lord as a child and 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 did fine you know but i, I something happened when i was about um, i was about 18 19 years old where i just came face to face with uh the challenge of truly being sold out completely completely no other options uh, but jesus and uh and when that happened i just began to serve you know i just began to serve I would help. We had a a ministry on the street ministry here called the Salt House and just working with hippies and the drug uh, culture and and all. And uh, so it just just worked with them and worked with, you know, the youth and the children and uh, whatever we uh, the church needed junior high uh pastors in a particular season so benny and i my wife and i volunteered to help she took the girls i took the boys Uh, there was a time where you needed a single adult pastor so i volunteered for that the point was all i did was just volunteer to help but never thought i'd be a pastor even though i was i was on staff at that point and i I was uh i just i thought it was temporary i did i just thought it was temporary because it's just they were recognizing where i'd serve And they finally, you know, they wanted me to to do it full time. And so I would serve and serve. And I just remember one day uh, realizing, you know what, I I have a pastor's heart. And uh, I didn't, I never received that, uh, quote unquote, call into the ministry. My dad did as a child. Uh, People around me had those encounters. Randy Clark, one of my closest friends, he had a very clear call. And I've never had it. Um, All I've I've known to do is... uh, is just serve where I can, and and uh, a very special part of that approach for me was I would serve where I wasn't qualified or wasn't good. You know, I take on response. I didn't do. I didn't just take on responsibilities that met my goals for my life. I I just served where there was a need, and uh, I'd end up doing administrative stuff, which I'm not good at. Uh, but it's what was needed, so I would do it, and uh, and it kind of it kind of the Lord kind of took that and kind of charted a course for my life out of that, which caught me completely by surprise because I I wasn't thinking in terms of, you know, ever being a pastor long term. It was just a kind of a short-term thing. But yeah, I I was surprised. I, I think if the Lord would have, you know, put the call of God thing on me at a young age, <laughs> I might have died from fright. <laughs> I, oh goodness. I I I hated reading, hated reading. Uh, read one book all through school, uh, eighth grade, read a book, uh, faked it on all book reports. I hated reading. I, uh, I would do anything to avoid speaking in front of a group of people. Um, I would never, I hated writing even worse than reading. And uh, I, I remember taking an F on an exam um, just so I wouldn't have to answer the question out loud in front of the class. I mean, I didn't want to, I just would to do anything to avoid so all these things that uh, that I despised or disliked or avoided are now primary functions in my life, and uh, it just kind of comes to the point where God puts something in your heart to say. You you uh, the desire to say it is stronger than the fear to not say it, or the, stronger than the fear to speak out loud. So anyway, it's just kind of an awkward journey, but it is it is true. That's that's how it's worked for me. So if I ever get that call, I'm going to really go for it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to say, it seems like things have worked out pretty well, notwithstanding. Um, But, you know, it's interesting that you were, as you say, essentially resisting and avoiding uh, the very things that are primary functions of what you do now. I often wonder sometimes if, I don't think we use this language very much anymore, but it's that's a little bit like the idea of running from the call, except in this case, the call is kind of wrapped into all those tasks. And so, by extension, if you're trying to avoid the task, you were trying to avoid this and you just found your way there anyhow.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: that's that's true. The Lord in some way chased me
2: into a corner where my only option was doing what I'm doing. And, and I'm, I'm so thankful. I, it wasn't brutal. It wasn't mean. It wasn't harsh. It was just, I found him changing my desires, my, my thinking, my, my appetites, all of that changed
1: to where the very things I didn't like are the very things I love the most. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I, you know, I've, I've always found the Lord to be very kind too, but I will say he can be, persistent to the point of being relentless and, uh, he he eventually wins every argument. So you might as well just surrender early on. Exactly. (laughs) Well, well Well, all right. So, um, all right. So you didn't especially feel the calling, but just out of, you know, faithfulness and continuing to go in the direction where, you know, you were and being, reliable in that. One of the fruits of the spirit is is faithfulness, not just faith. Um, You find yourself here. So when did you become a student and a devotee of revival? What led you into specifically that direction, as opposed to any number of other directions that people might go once they're in the ministry? I mean, given what you said, you might have just focused on, say, homeless ministry and social justice, but you actually have this very clear and distinct uh, gravitational pull towards revival. It's a theme in most of your preaching and many of your books. How did that all develop?
2: It, it started early on uh, when my heart began to really turn. I became I instantly became a reader. And, uh, and I would just devour books. I'd pour myself. In fact, I, w- I was reading a book called Normal Christian Life by Watchman Nee. Mm. And I was reading that book. I was, I was so struck by his insight. And I thought, he got that from the Bible. I need to up my time in the Word. So books didn't draw me away from Scripture. It drove me to Scripture. And, uh, and it had that effect on me. But I, I became uh, a real devoted reader. And, uh, and the people I were with uh, had a good history and background in revival. And, uh, you know, Marillo Murillo uh, changed my life. He, he you know, at, at 19, 20 years old, was preaching revival. And uh, Chip Worthington, who was the youth pastor at that time that I was about 18, 19 years old, he would just feed me books on prayer. And the reoccurring theme was revival. So I inherited early on. Winky Prattney was a huge influence uh, to this day, but especially in those early years. And, uh, and, of course, he's written one of the premier books on revival, but it just, it was a part of the language. It was a part of, it was almost like, uh, you know, if you're alive, you should hunger for revival. And it was, like, <laughs> here, here's the most common sense appetite you can have as a believer is for God to do something beyond your ability uh, in your lifetime. And, uh, and so it, it was just a very normal part. I don't remember, any time from that initial absolute surrender, I don't remember any time of my life revival hasn't been a primary focus. Mm.
1: Now you mentioned in particular Mario Murillo and you and I aren't quite the same age, but we're approximately the same age. We're close. Um, I can remember when I was a young man in Southern California, uh, I had friends in my church who would climb in the car and they would just all of them drive up as a group to go to San Jose, where Mario was ministering and preaching. <clears throat> You're from the Northern California area. Did you ever go see him live in Northern California during that oh, period of time? Oh, all the time. And he came here.
2: My dad and he were very close. And he would come here at 20, 21 years old and, and preach. And he, he, his preaching here is what changed my life. But I would also travel, you know, to Chico or the San Francisco, Berkeley, where he, he uh, had uh, Resurrection City and ministry on the, uh, outside the Berkeley uh, University campus. And, uh, yeah, we would travel. I, I would travel, you know, anywhere, anywhere I, I could with my little Volkswagen. I would travel to, to, to go uh, hear him preach. And, in fact, to be honest with you, I would travel to hear him speak great distance even when I wasn't doing well before I, I said the absolute yes. I mean, there was something in me that said, this is real. This is yep. reality. This is absolutely right. And I had this appetite. In fact, what he would do uh, created in me or gave, gave rise to an appetite for godly things in me that that I I've, thankfully have never been able to shake, not that I would want to, but it's, it's really uh, uh, changed my life completely and uh you know surrender to jesus is the result of my appetites for him it's it's the most logical thing in the world to do it's you know there may be struggles here and there but the the point is it's the most logical thing in the world is to say yes to jesus and and mario displayed it that way with purity and power and uh and i i so needed i needed the all or nothing you know draw a line in the sand step over that that's what i needed and and he did it. He did it day after day after day. And uh, so, yeah, I, I would do the same. I I would travel a great distance. And uh, in fact, Mario, when my dad died, Mario, uh preached at his funeral uh, for us. And he was, uh, they were very, very close. My dad was a great encouragement to him. Mm.
1: You know, I was talking to someone recently um, about, I'll just say, trends in the modern church. And uh, this friend of mine was and and, I mean, I think people kind of know this, but he was he was making the point that we do no one any favors by trying to ride the line that we really need to be clearly in or out. And, you know, we were talking about a couple of very specific issues that are in play right now. And, you know, that is one thing about Mario that I remember way back to when I was um, a younger man is, you know, he was definitely a no compromise kind of guy, like Keith Green was, or we could name some others. But the thing is, um, you know, Paul says to the Philippians that that what has happened to him, he's in prison at the time, has actually served to embolden and to strengthen the believers that are there. And so while there are some that want to water things down or or go a little light, and I think we want to be careful to be kind and maybe gentle in the way we say things, but we still want to be clear and and firm. It sounds like that, I mean, because I know Mario has always been marked by that, that had a big influence on you. And so, like you say, when you weren't doing well, the mere fact that he was so clear about things actually helped draw you even more clearly and forcefully and strongly towards the things of God. Do you find that in your own ministry that the, the more articulate and clear you are about things, the more it, it strengthens people and draws them to truth.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. It's so just, in that sense, he's a role model really.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and he's been a dear friend for all these years too. So yeah. he, he, uh, he's been a great help and strength to me, but yeah. He, he uh, you know, I, I was just uh, I grew up in church and and uh, and knew right from wrong and all of that. But Mario came and I realized, oh, there's a, uh, mean I am a lukewarm person, and uh, and you can only tolerate that so long when you hang around red hot people. And like I said, I would travel a distance because I I could see something there that I I needed, and uh, and so yeah, he was no compromise uh, to this day. And, uh, and that's exactly what I needed. And I don't know. I mean, I, I'm sure I could have got that from a number of other places, but he was the gift God put in my life to draw a line in the sand and say, it's all or nothing.
0: And I, I would just say that I was just with him, uh, in Nashville and, uh, he's still a no compromise guy. <laughs> yeah, he,
1: yeah. He is. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. That's yeah. All. And, you he know, was... years ago, um, <clears throat> when the Kansas City prophets were first emerging uh, from, I mean, they were there, but but they weren't that well known. John Wimber got involved with all that. And he brought Leonard Ravenhill out to the Anaheim mm-hmm. Vineyard. And I can still see mm-hmm. Leonard Ravenhill's long bony finger as he would stand up there. And he, now he sometimes maybe was a little bit harsh, but he spoke truth. And I think John brought him because you know, all, all people have a tendency ultimately to maybe cool off if they don't keep stoking the fire. And so Leonard had that function in our fellowship, probably the way Mario did in your father's church when you were a boy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely true. So here's an interesting question. I don't even know if you'll know the answer to this bill, but you're a, you are a student of revival. Um, I, and I've talked to Mario about this a, a little bit, before Mario Marillo and before Lonnie Frisbee, and even before Benny Hinn, uh, there was Catherine Kuhlman, mm-hmm. and she was ministering at the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles as her principal mm-hmm. place, and it's still there today. Uh, it's up the road from where I live. And um, once when I was a boy, my mother took me to a Catherine Kuhlman meeting, it freaked her out so much that she grabbed me and we ran out and we never went back to another one. But, but I was really intrigued by what I saw. And I still kind of remember that meeting. I'm not even sure how old I was. I might've been maybe five or six or seven years old, but anyway, um, I was talking with somebody who's a student of church history, done some homework in this area. And he told me, and this is a very particular language set, but he said, when Catherine Kuhlman died, her mantle was torn into seven strips and they were distributed to seven of her followers. Uh, it almost sounds like the Lord of the Rings. And, you know, these are the Lord <laughs> of the Rings, right? But anyway, uh, and I don't remember four of them, but, but he very clearly said um, one of those strips went to Lonnie Frisbee, one of them went to Mario Murillo, wow. and one of them went to Benny Hinn. And, but there were the other four. And I, again, I'm not sure who those other four were. Well, this intrigued me. <clears throat> and uh, I carried this around in my memory banks and my heart for a number of years. And then one time I was at a meeting where Mario was speaking and I was there too. And, you know, he and I ended up talking and, uh, and I asked him about that story and, you know, it was kind of funny. He kind of cocked his head and looked up and he said, yeah, that would be right. So, you know, he actually attributes a big part of whatever it is that he's doing and is to her and her ministry. So I'm just kind of curious, um, can you fill in the blanks and tell us who the other four were? Have you ever heard this story? I've never heard that story. I heard her speak at the shrine. I also heard her a
2: couple of times there and heard her in Sacramento at, uh, at a uh, auditorium there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, very, very very fascinating fascinatingly but i never heard that word of it being torn into seven pieces that's that's new to me oh uh, that's, that's well
1: it's a very specific language set, even to talk about you know tearing a mantle and that sort of what? thing That trends towards the pentecostal end of the church but sure. uh the thing that's interesting to me about all of that and I've, I've taught on this in some of the meetings that i've led here and there is this thing that it, it kind of is akin to apostolic succession, as they understand it in the Catholic Church. And if you go right back to William Seymour in Azusa Street, when he died, two of the people that came out of his ministry were F.F. Bosworth and John G. Lake. And you know people who are revival historians certainly know those names. And Lake and uh, Bosworth, ultimately, when they, they were rattling around in various places, but they were starting up in L.A., And in the teens, the 19 teens, um, there was a young woman who was coming on the scene, Amy Semple, who becomes Amy Semple McPherson. And they had a big hand in raising her and training her. And, of course, she becomes a very prominent healing evangelist and starts a a whole denomination that's still going. Um, And Catherine Kuhlman came out of Amy Semple McPherson. So what we've just done is we've traced down to the great granddaughter, spiritually, of William Seymour. And then if it's right about this story of the mantle and the seven strips, then Mario is effectively a uh, great grandson of William Seymour, as was Lonnie Frisbee, as is Benny Hinn. And certainly anyone who knows these names is aware of the hand of the Lord that's on these people. Um, And so we can see that, the river keeps flowing, and I'm, I'm reminded of that line out of Ecclesiastes, that all rivers run to the sea, and yet the sea is not full. Yeah, And a lot of times when I think about this, I'm being choked up saying it, but um, thinking about this, you realize the incredible river of God that we stand in, uh, because you knew... You know, Mario, you knew Mario, you know, you knew him then, you know him now, uh, you know, somehow you and I became connected through friends, uh, you know, Grant and I are connected. And so this river, it seems like it's widening and having more and more force behind it. And it's a broader current and it's a deeper river. And so all the rivers are ultimately running to the sea of God, but, but we're not there yet. And so we need more of these kinds of. I don't know, rains from above in order to fill the river. I don't know if you want to comment on that. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's, it's absolutely true. And there's a, a momentum that's created by the faithfulness of one person. And I, I like the picture that you drew of this, you know, torn into seven pieces or Seymour into two. I, I think that's right. I think it has to increase and that's, uh, that's only appropriate. My, my uncle was a soloist for Amy Simple McPherson. Oh, and wow. uh, a number of my family members were uh, baptized in the Holy Spirit in uh, Mariah Wood with meetings. And uh, Amy Simple uh, McPherson, my grandfather, actually painted her home and did some of the, he was a designer a painter and uh, did a number of design features in her home that were unheard of at that time. And, and anyway, it's just our family goes back into those those are, interestingly, my, uh, a couple of my relatives, when they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, wrote in perfect Chinese, uh, never knowing the language. And then uh, sometime later, when missionaries came through town that knew Chinese, they could read it, and it was all praise to God. So, but um, those experiences happened through these uh, these circles, you know, the Mariah Wood, Woodworth Edders, and and uh, I'm, I'm forgetting now some of the other names of that particular, oh, uh, Wigglesworth. Uh, my my grandfather I remember him telling me once he said not everybody liked wigglesworth you know, his his faith was so bold it just made the complacent convicted you know and uh but uh anyway that's uh, some of my family history is that stuff so i i, I wish my grandfather were still alive because i have some questions for him you know yeah at, at that time i was a kid i i mean i cared but i didn't care enough and and uh anyway it's it's all a fun part of the the, I like the way you describe it, a river that's getting deeper and broader. Yeah, um, it's it's really true.
1: It's really so true. that's interesting hearing all of the connections in your family to all of that because on my side, I don't. You and I have never talked about this, but on my side, my grandfather and grandmother. So this is my mother's parents. Um, they were converted in a tent revival on uh, in Western Michigan <clears throat> in the early 1900s and that tent revival was led by literally a horseback riding preacher who was himself a disciple of a disciple of francis asbury Wow. who was a disciple of john wesley wow so you know you're talking about one stream of the river that's kind of the pentecostal signs and wonders stream i didn't originally come out of that i'm definitely in it now but i came out of more of that holiness side but john wesley was a signs and wonders guy and just recently there was an article published in Firebrand magazine about uh, John Wesley as a dead raiser <laughs> so oh wow yeah i mean you know he he did he had resurrections and the other thing that John Wesley used to do is he would ride around in you know in england in particular you couldn't really pull this off in the us because it was too new of a country and he would go into a town where there would be An old church, and by then it would have typically been an Anglican church, but it might well still be a Catholic church. And there would be what they called an anchorite there, and an anchorite was somebody who got walled into a room. There was no door. I mean, they would slide the food and the slop bucket in and out, and they would give them a bed and maybe a table and chair, and that was all. They spent their life in there just praying and doing this. Wesley would ride up to the anchorite, and they were mostly prophets of one kind or another, but they were they were you know reclusive and wesley would would ride up to speak with the anchorite and the anchorites would often say to him things like oh, I've been waiting for you to come for, for three weeks. I, I knew you were coming. If you'll go down to the edge of town and turn right on the lane there by the big oak tree, there's an open meadow. And if you preach there, that's where the people will gather and you'll have the great outpouring of the spirit. So Wesley was consciously seeking out the leading of prophets yep, to yep. carry that out. So that that's, that's in the Wesleyan strain, but it's not very well commented on or reported on. And it's a uh, It's a fascinating bit of history that in some ways tracks to the very things we're talking about. Well, I love that. That's beautiful. Yeah. So anyway, you and I both have some uh, interesting history in that regard, each on a different different tributary of the river. I I like how Randy Clark puts it. He says, every stream thinks they're the river. (laughs) I'm just happy to be a tributary and be part of it all. Exactly. Exactly. Now, um, okay. So you, I think originally, at least as I understand your history, you originally were pastoring in Weaverville, California, and ultimately you moved back to Reading and you took over your dad's church. And you know, I'm aware, and you've talked about this in different places, that when you took over that church, um, the church actually shrank after you took it over. Um, now, your dad and you are obviously different men, uh, somewhat different emphases and callings, but, but you know, related, clearly. What were the most visible differences between your father's ministry and the way he conducted it and yours? And how did you work through those difficult days when the church was, we'll just say, being pruned as you nevertheless were doing your best to follow the Lord? Yeah, first of all, um, I served
2: with my dad here at Bethel for five years. Okay. And then I was sent to Weaverville for 17. But when I came back here, my dad had already been gone for many years, and there were two other pastors that came during that time. One was here for like two years. Another came for, I think, 12 years. And so there was a a lot of change that went on uh, during that time. Uh, The previous pastor to me, uh was really a, a really a, a good man and a, and a good personal friend. His style and stuff is different. It's not old line, uh, Pentecostal or it's it's not that stylistic thing as much It's just the, the focus was quite a bit different. And, uh, and yet the same values, uh he was a signs of wonders guy uh, operated amazingly in word of knowledge and the prophetic stuff like that very strong evangelistic gift on his life. And, uh, but uh, uh, the church had a lot of different ministries that they had built and raised up. And when I came, I tried to keep all of them going. I didn't want to make any changes. I kept all the same staff, everything. But the Holy Spirit began to begin to move differently than what everybody was accustomed to. Hmm. And it was it was the exact same as we were experiencing for the previous almost year up in Weaverville. We were having a, a very powerful, outpouring of the Holy Spirit there. And so the elders came up to see what was happening. The elders from Reading came to Weaverville to see what was happening. And they determined it was God and that's what they wanted. And so that's why they invited me to come and to pastor here. And uh, so that's a little bit uh, more of the backstory.
1: I didn't know all that, okay, that's helpful.
2: And the church had grown significantly under the previous pastor's leadership, because he's a great leader. And uh, no zero, zero, zero complaints uh, at all. I mean, he really had had done a great job. Um, but my my role was different. And the season changed very dramatically uh, from what they were accustomed to to what was now happening in that outpouring of the spirit. And it doesn't mean God wasn't free to move before I came. Uh, it's just the package was different. And the way God showed up was different. And. Um, it wasn't hard for me, though. Um, we, you know, we lost about a thousand people; about half the church uh, left. And um, I don't want to say it's fun to see people leave. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, uh, people would meet with me and they'd say all kinds of cruel things or whatever. Uh, but actually, uh, there was such a, a bubble of grace around me that it all seemed—it uh, seemed a part of the. Uh, appropriate package, if you will. It, it seemed like this is good, because what, what's happening is I am being forced to choose. God is showing up and doing things I have dreamed of my whole ministry life, and the, I'm finally seeing it. It's happening in front of my eyes, and uh, I'm not willing to trade this for more butts in the seat, so to speak. I'm, I'm not interested in having more people attend um, and, and I know a lot of the people, i would known some of them for many years. Some of them prayed us to come here for years. And they, they actually acknowledged, they said, we know this is God. We just can't do it. And, uh, and so I, I, it wasn't hard for me. It was hard for my staff that I inherited because they had a lot of friends. Families would split. You know, half of them would stay, half would go. And that was, that was a challenging part for me. But there was such a grace around me during that season, and the Lord was unusually clear on what I was supposed to do every step of the way. It doesn't always happen that way, at least not for me. Sometimes I just choose my best. I just, you know, it's 1159. You have to make a decision. You make your best decision, and I have the Lord affirm it afterwards, you know, and so there's a lot of that that goes on in leadership and pastoral ministry. You function out of principle, not just out of the voice of the Lord. And uh, that's a huge part of life. But that early season, it was all by the voice. Mm. There was just very, very little that wasn't a clear decision. And so that gave me just the confidence that we're doing the right thing. And you know, if we're left with a handful of people, I'm I'm good as long as he shows up. I'm good. And uh, and, and really sincerely, it wasn't a, it wasn't a cover up to try to mask the pain of losing people. I've done that before. Uh, you know, as a pastor, you have people that you pour into for years and they get up and leave and, you know, you just have that stuff happen. It's called life. Um, but, uh, but this was different. There was such a glorious presence and things happening that neither I nor any of our team could ever take credit for. It was so sovereignly God's invasion that, uh, I wasn't willing to trade that for anything. And, uh, so it really was an easy thing for me, Um uh,
1: Yep. That's helpful. That, that's really helpful. I wonder if you could elaborate a little more though. You said something about maybe two minutes ago or three minutes ago <clears throat> that sometimes you're led by the explicit presence. And that was a season where you had that, but you said there are other times where you just have to lead by principle. Yeah. Um, I'm specifically thinking, you know, there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are um, millennials, they're up and coming leaders Mm-hmm. And, of course, everybody loves the presence. Who doesn't Who doesn't want to go to church and get hit by the Holy Spirit? Well, hit might sound bad, but I think we all know what we mean. Uh, you know, overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit, right. okay. you know, gold dust, feathers, gems, whatever, whatever and any of it, right? Oil, we, yeah. we like all of it. Yeah. But there are those times where um, the Lord doesn't seem to do that, and we have to lead by principle. Why don't you unpack that a little bit? I think that would be really helpful for people to hear more about that. Yeah,
2: yeah. it's it's. Uh, you, you said we all would love to rather be guided by the presence, but the voice is another way. The presence is the voice. And the voice is the presence. So because he is the word of God, they're uh, synonymous, uh, different expressions of the same thing. So uh, I, I always w- want to know the word of the Lord for a given situation. But sometimes he will not speak to me. And I used to think, you know, I must have done something wrong. Maybe I'm not hearing clearly. And then over a period of time, I started to learn that, oh, he taught me the principle for this decision a year ago. Hmm. And so what happens is you're forced in your decision. If he's not speaking to you, there's a good chance he already taught it to you. And you need to review the things you've been learning the last six months, the last year, last year and a half. And so I'd start start to recognize, oh, he actually prepared me for this decision a year ago. And, and what he does is he will put truth in us, and then he will leave us alone to see if we'll function by that truth, or do we just function by the inspiration of his presence? And uh, Hezekiah had that happen, where the Lord, the Lord uh, dealt generously with him, uh, profoundly so, gave him favor in the nations, and extreme blessing of the Lord on his life. And then it says the Lord backed up from him. It wasn't punishment. It was to see, can this servant that I've raised up, can he function out of the things I've taught him, or does he need the ongoing inspiration of my presence to obey? And he's looking for people that can obey, obviously, out of the presence. The inspiration of his voice, it's still my favorite. I'd rather have him tell me exactly what to do. But there are times where he is silent and it's never punishment. It's not punishments because he's already put it in me. And he's looking to see, will I live out of the things I've already said amen to? And it's a part of maturity. It's part of growing up. And I don't ever want to lose the appetite for the voice because that's still is what just feeds my soul i live because he speaks but um but i i've had to come to the realization painful at times that there there are times he will not talk to me he will not talk to me because he's already spoken and it's it's up to me to rediscover what he's already said that prepared me for this moment
1: I used to, uh, well, I still am, uh, but I have a friend who used to pastor in Texas, and uh, he's retired now, but we still stay in touch. And uh, one time I was visiting with him, this would be probably 20 years ago now, and his boys were, at that time, they were teenagers, but they were old enough to be going out at night, and um, he called them over to him as they were getting ready to go out. And this guy had at one time been in, in the Marines. So he still kind of carried that Marine bearing and that Marine sense of semper fee and all of that. Uh, and he, and he said, boys come over here. And so they walked over. Yes, sir. And could just even to hear that was a little you know surprising coming from California. And, uh, and he said, now I know you're going out tonight and I want you to have fun. And he said, but never forget you're my boys. And he said, and I expect you to honor me and live in such a way that the family name will be honored he said, do I make myself clear? And they said, yes, sir. And he said, go have a good time. And that was it. But I, it really left an impression on me, obviously, because I'm mentioning it now. But I think in, in its own way, that's kind of an earthly recapitulation of the very principle you're describing, that the Lord has told us what we should do or how we ought to live or the principles by which to lead or to manage or to conduct our affairs Many times they're written down in a book called the Bible. Yeah. And the question is, when the chips are down and no one seems to be looking, of course, he's always looking. Uh, can we carry those things forward and be faithful to them? Can we be faithful stewards and reliable? And and I don't know why, but it, it, it does seem that in our time right now, that principle is being challenged across the board. Yeah. Do, do, do you see that as well? Perhaps,
2: absolutely yeah and, and part of the reason is uh, to live by principle is the bold confession that there are absolutes that you will live by and follow and this is the period of time where the absolutes are uh, of life are are up for grabs you know everybody has an opinion on this and that and and i I think you're right I think this is a time where we're learning what the the principles that Here's what I've learned. The principles of the kingdom are like, um be like foundations of a house. When foundations are in place, this is a weird picture, and I, I, I need to find better language to describe this. But when foundations are in place, they actually attract the walls and the windows. They actually attract the rest of the building. They actually invite the rest of it because there's a place to put it. And, uh, and those who have the true, absolute principles of the kingdom of God established in our heart, devotion to Christ, devotion to his word, to his people, the lifestyle of worship and prayer, when these things are in place, understanding comes easy. The Bible says knowledge comes easy to the person with understanding. There is this, it's almost like this invitation that takes place emotionally, mentally, spiritually, where um, common sense becomes more common. And the insight into how the kingdom works, you just, you seem to attract that information. And that's, anyway, that's what I've found. So if, if you can be the person who lives by the principles of the kingdom when you're inspired and when you're not, you'll attract revelation.
1: Well, and to further the metaphor that you were just using, um, you, I don't know if you know this, but... When the cathedrals of Europe, the great cathedrals of Europe, like Notre Dame and Chartres, and, you know, all these other, you know, big Gothic cathedrals were built approximately 900 to 1000 years ago. Um, you know, they didn't have modern computers and everything, but they understood engineering. And so, um, you know, they had to they had to lay the foundations and they had to be deep enough to bear the weight of the building. And they had to be you know square and true. And they knew how to do that. But when they built those cathedrals, they actually made them so that, and you were talking about making places for windows, they made them so that just a little bit, it's it's really minor. I don't even know if I can show it on my screen exactly, but there's just a little bit of inward lean. And as all of those pieces fell into place, they would lean into each other and that, as it were, locked everything into place. And in the transepts, at, the, at where the crossing points are, they would have always a keystone that was shaped like a wedge, and they would drop that in, and that would literally take the entire weight of all the walls all the way down to the foundations, so that the entire thing was one interlocking puzzle. I guess is the only word I can think of, but it was it was designed to do that. And so, you know, as you're talking about wisdom and understanding and foundations. That's really what the Lord, I think, wants to do in our lives. And OK, Notre Dame had a fire recently and, you know, they're they're rebuilding it now. But what's interesting is, for the most part, it didn't fall apart. It it, it just kept leaning inward. Some of the upper stories were burned and they got to fix all that. But these cathedrals are still here a thousand years later. Mm-hmm. That's going to outlast any modern engineering, I think, that we're doing today, even uh-huh. with all of our computers. Right. Yeah. So there's something about that interlocking of truth of staying with what is right that will give us and our lives. And if we're if we're doing anything for the Lord, our ministries, it gives them legacy. It gives them persistency and endurance uh, because we are honoring his principles.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely true. And the, prin- the, the thing that excites me is is uh, every church or ministry has a culture not always is that culture defined by kingdom principles. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's defined, I don't know if I can say this right, it's, it's defined out of things that are right and wrong, but not necessarily the way the kingdom functions. And, uh, and when a ministry uh, operates by true kingdom principle, the Lord lifts the veil of that ministry and puts them in a place to influence culture and society. And the reason is because kingdom principle in my office works just as well in the mayor's office and the CEO's office mm. and the athlete's office, um, because it it is so perfectly transferable to every part of society, because it is truly the kingdom of God. And that's what makes us relatable and have something to, to be able to serve our, our cities with, our nations, our leaders, to serve them well, it's because... Is because we're tapping into something that's not just a religious culture. It's not just a moral culture. Is as good as those things are. When it functions by the way his government functions, it is now transferable. And, uh, and what we find happening now is people outside of our normal place of influence are hungering for input because, because it works. Because what we're trying to learn to do actually works in their world, too.
1: Yeah, I, I completely agree because the kingdom transcends culture. It, it's over all cultures. I don't care if it's American or Chinese or German or Nigerian. It's just it's yeah. it's the Lord's culture. And the thing that's interesting about it, you know, righteousness and truth are the foundations of his throne. And I've often said that it doesn't really matter where in the world you find them. People who are kingdom people and who live by the standards of the kingdom. We could say the rules of the kingdom, but rules is kind of an off-the-list word these days. So they live by the standards and the dictates of the kingdom. Um, Righteous people will live righteously. And with that, they will spawn, they will breed justice and truth and integrity and character and honesty and put a bunch of other words like that on the list. Because these are the things that define and mark the, the nature of the kingdom.
0: Yeah, yeah I, I think, too. I mean, the kingdom principles are like they're like gravity. They work whether or not you believe in it. It doesn't matter. And right. I think that's the thing that makes them so transferable. And, you know, to what you were talking about, um, you know, when we talk about building our house upon the rock, and the foundation and, and all of the things that Jesus has said, you know, if that's the foundation, if that's the principle. Ken, this is like what you and I have been talking about over the summer with this new Reformation idea is getting back to the basics of the principles so that when the feelings and emotions aren't there, we can still know how to how to walk and how to live. I love the way that you articulated that. And it's really, it's that moving from servant to friends uh, that Jesus sort of talks about is that sort of transition yeah. in, in the relationship at some point. We, we have to move to friends. Yeah. That's just so great how you articulated that. I love yeah. that. That's awesome. Yeah.
1: And further to something else we've said, I think, um, so the Lord, you know, instructs us in his ways. And, and again, I'm not just talking about rules. I'm really talking about his ways, his preferences. What are the things that delight his heart um, so that we can have that that friendship type of relationship? he instructs us in that, but then there are times where he doesn't say anything and he leaves us uh, in silence. Like you were talking about bill, not because he's angry, but it's really our opportunity to say, ah, this is one of those moments where I need to implement the very things I've been taught. And so am I going to act righteously or justly or kindly or mercifully, or, you know, whatever is appropriate in that moment, but it's, it's God's way of saying, all right, now that you've got the basic idea, let's put it into practice. Let's turn you into a practitioner. And ultimately, as you grow in it, let's turn you into an expert in these things. And with that, you become a promulgator of kingdom culture as you go about your daily life. Yep, that's right. Yeah. That's
2: right.
1: That's, all right. It, it, the Bible
2: uh, teaches that uh, Jesus is the desire of all nations which to me means everybody wants a King like Jesus. Right. So if there's an appetite for a King, there's an appetite for a kingdom. And what we have the privilege of doing is helping to model what people are hungry for.
1: Yeah. Amen. Yep. They may not know they want Jesus, but as soon as they see the real thing, they come running.
2: That's the truth. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, let's talk about um, let's talk about, global revival again you've been a revivalist for some years once you got a hold of it you've never let it go um and of course you're sharing you know only your own viewpoint but i'm interested in hearing uh how do you see revival unfolding as things go forward you know you have a book called dreaming with god you've done a lot of dreaming with god can you describe what you think are some of the key initiatives on the human side among mankind and also the steps or stages that the Holy Spirit may want to unfold as part of making that occur? How, do, how would you envision that unfolding? I know you're somewhat here prognosticating, but you're in touch with a lot of prophets. You're a man who hears from God. You're one of the key voices speaking into revival in the world. So if, if you just take your palette out, take your paint out and start painting the picture, what does that look like?
2: But it, it revival starts with our absolute surrender to Him. I mean, it, you don't you don't go anywhere without that. And many people are surrendered to their idea of revival, but they're not necessarily surrendered to Him doing what He wants. Mm-hmm. And to what it came down to for me was was the willingness to I had to sacrifice my right to dignity. And uh, yeah, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. It took place in the middle of the night. An encounter with the Lord, and I had to lay down my right to look right, to look good. And uh, and when when you you give that absolute yes to Jesus, there can't be there can't be a P.S. on my end or or an, an addendum, something that I add to the contract. It's just yes. You can do anything you want in me and through me. So that's where it starts. It really does start by us learning to be a presence-oriented people. Um, I'm not opposed to programs. I think structure is good. I think planning is good, I think strategy, all those things are good, but all of those things are subject to the presence of God. Now, most everybody I know that's a believer would say they already embrace those values of the presence first, but there's no measurable way to prove it. In, In other words, they're always left to their ideas. They're not. They're not picking up the moments where he has something else in mind, and if it's like Proverbs says, uh, uh, wisdom is better than jewels, better than money. All uh, right, everybody says amen to that, but has wisdom cost you money? If it hasn't cost you, then then your amen is, is pointless. It, it has to be. It has to be. Our, our yes has to be measurable. And so if I, as a leader of a meeting, am truly saying the Holy Spirit can do whatever he wants, I will follow him anywhere, then step by step throughout that, let's just take a a gathering, step by step throughout that gathering, I have my, my sail up, so to speak, to try to catch the wind of what the Spirit of God is doing. It doesn't mean we don't have a plan. It doesn't mean we don't have an ambition. It just means I really meant it when I said yes. And there are times where uh, he interrupts the entire thing. There are times he he blesses the plan we put together and we find out he was actually the inspiration behind the plan. And so, but the point is, it starts with that absolute yes. And I can have an idea of what I think revival looks like, but it doesn't mean I know at all what he's about to do. And um, I, I use this as an example. I've seen people shake under the power of god i've seen them shake under the power of demons and i've seen them shake because they wanted attention and it all looks the same you have to be you have to become familiar with the presence of god not just the manifestations of his presence you him himself and that is best learned in in the personal journey of walking with jesus in, in other words you don't learn that best performing ministry. Mm. You get a limited measure of understanding of how to recognize his presence when you want to do it for ministry. But when you want to do it for your relationship, then the floodgates become open and you start recognizing just the little simple little things that take place throughout a given day where he's, he's just reminding you he is with you. Uh, there's a demonstration of, of compassion or or a miracle takes place, whatever it might be. But the point is, is you start being um, uh, d- discipled or trained, or mentored in recognizing the, the Spirit of God. That's at the heart and soul of all of it. And it doesn't matter if you're a pastor, a traveling preacher, a politician, a businessman. It doesn't matter. It all works the same. As learning to recognize the presence of God is it. So as I look at the landscape of the church, I think we have to become a presence-oriented people. That has to be first and foremost. And it's not just to have a successful gathering because sometimes when you become, I mean, we've had times here where I I remember, I remember one service where my son Brian was leading worship and he got up and I think he had the second chord, and the presence of God began to fill that room so powerfully we actually didn't sing our first song for 35 minutes. Wow. There was just there was just this thunderous awe of the presence of God in the room. And and we just nobody's looking at their watch because they're overwhelmed with the sense that God is here. Yep. And you know, you just you just lose track of time, so to speak. And I I think that was the meeting. I ended up uh, at the very end, we had to be out because of a certain time when you have multiple services and such. I remember we had to be up by a certain time. I had everybody stand up, and I gave a three-minute sermon, um, and that was it. Now, that's not our standard. We we try to teach consistently regularly. But if he shows up, I'm not going to interrupt him to preach. I, I have zero desire to tell anybody an insight I may have on Scripture. I All I want to do is follow him. And I, I believe that that is the standard. That once we learn it in our personal lives, and then we learn it in our corporate life, suddenly the stay-at-home mom has a different grid from which to live as she ministers to her neighbor. Suddenly, the traveling salesman has a different way of thinking about what city he should go to next, because now he actually knows God has interest in what I'm interested in and uh, you know the athlete that's about to sign a contract do i have a piece about signing with this team or that team it's, it's it's all presence oriented and i you know israel camped around the presence of the lord in in the wilderness they camped around the presence today we camp around sermons we camp around, camp around ministries not the presence and i think the heart of revival is the lord is leading us back into being a presence oriented people that we actually measurably can recognize that he's here
0: and that's that's so good and i if i can just i love what you were talking about the manifestations uh versus versus knowing the presence and really what i hear you saying is intimacy is being a people of intimacy with with the father and letting that guide you is that is that would that be sort of a synonymous to you
2: yeah well intimacy comes out of you know Right. Yeah, it, it's certainly it, it's it's the result, you know, to, if I can be rather brash in the way I present it here to our people, I say, listen, um, if you want intimacy with the Lord for ministry, that's professional intimacy. And we have a name for people who are intimate as a profession. <laughs> and that, and that's that's not what we want. We want the intimacy with God for the purpose of relationship and let ministry overflow from that place. And so that's. uh It's not just so we have a good church service or that we see miracles or so that our church grows or whatever. Those are, those are fruits. Those aren't goals. Those aren't, those aren't for me. They are not reliable goals. The goal is to know him and make him known. It really is.
1: You know, Bill, when you say what you've just said here, um, you know, I knew John Wimber. Well, I worked with him. I wrote some of his materials as a ghostwriter, um, you and he are, you use a little bit different language, but your concepts are identical. And so, you know, I've, I've often said that, you know, you are probably the nearest thing to a John Wimber that is alive today. And it's, it's because of exactly this kind of sentiment. And that was exactly where it began in the vineyard movement. They started worshiping in a living room and they just cried a lot. And, you know, Carol has said, uh even recently, in a, in a recent interview, she said, uh, we were tired of being Pharisees, but we just wanted the presence. And out of that, everything grew and flowed. So, I mean, this is for anyone who's listening to this broadcast, whether, you know, soon or years in the future, this is the stuff that you really need to be paying attention to because it is timeless. And I would even go back to something we said earlier in this broadcast where we were talking about Catherine Kuhlman and because you went to her meetings, you would know this, you know, she would come out and she had that, I don't know. I think it was kind of a Scottish brogue a bit, but Oh, the precious Holy spirit. And, you know, she would welcome the presence. She would, you know, say, come Holy spirit. And, you know, she had those long flowing robes and it was a little bit dramatic, but the heart was in the right place. And she was trying to orient people to let's just focus on the Lord and then whatever flows out of that is what flows out of that so there's yet another pioneer who was thinking in exactly the same way
2: yeah exactly you find the same if you read on evan roberts he wouldn't move till he sensed him show up You find the same with seymour and all these uh great revivalists they were presence oriented people yeah. and what we have the challenge to do now i don't know that i don't know the prior generations had the burden for this as we do today, but uh, the mandate that I feel is that what we experience and learn in the corporate gatherings of the honoring of the presence has now supposed to affect the boardroom of that corporation. It's, it's supposed to affect the city council and gathering and the, the baseball team that meets on the field. And, and if, we can, if we can influence culture to the point where we realize that God actually is with us and can be known, then suddenly it changes everything. And that's that's what we got to get, it. in other words, out of the gatherings. It's got to stay there, but it's got to move from just the gatherings of the people of God uh, for the miracles and the conversions and the teaching of the scripture uh, into the marketplace because that's where the transformation takes place.
1: Yeah, amen. Yeah. Well, we're about out of time, but let me just ask one closing question, and then uh, I think that'll be it. Right. Um, so, I think everything we've said kind of leads up to this, and maybe we've even partially answered it. But as we think about revival unfolding uh, going forward, what do you think are the three biggest barriers to seeing that revival unfold? Or, you know, if you have four, it could be four. But you know, it's it's always helpful to think about. What might stop this so we can consciously avoid it and keep things going as they ought?
2: Many people's miracle starts the day they stop being impressed with the size of their problem. And the church is, is become very aware culturally of the things that have gone wrong. But at sometimes we've become more aware of the size of the problem. In other words, we have a bigger devil than we have God. Not theologically, we know God's bigger. But in practice, we're more conscious of the things that are broken and are wrong than we are of God's solution. So I would say that the first thing is we have to become a people of biblical hope. The book of Hope is the joyful anticipation of good. It is the expectancy that God is about to do something. Uh, this, as the scripture says, I would have lost hope had I not believed I'd see the goodness of God in the land of the living. And it's those kinds of things. I think I think that has to be a huge part is we have to return to hope. We have to stop being impressed by the devil's uh, success record or, or scorecard or whatever, you know, however you want to put it, but to stop being impressed because he is not impressive at all. Every one of his kingdoms falls in a moment to the authentic, to the authentic gospel of Jesus displayed in purity and power. So first thing is, is restored hope. I would say the whole presence thing that we just talked about is, is very, very significant. I think, um, I think not being afraid of, uh, uh, I feel the Lord is erasing the line between secular and sacred. Mm. I think, um, you know, once he's involved, it's no longer secular. You know, um, I, I just, we just got a report from somebody who works for NASA, who through a dream saved them $60 million and a complete rewrite of a part of a program that they had to go through. And uh, but it was it was the Lord speaking through this dream, and He was able to actually teach all these engineers and these uh, t- like twenty PhDs uh, teach them about the dream life of it, and they were shocked that God would actually have interest in technology in science. Yeah. and science, uh, and and so part of part of our challenge in front of us is to believe that God actually cares. He cares about the ecology. He cares about Uh, technology. He cares about medicine, all these things. He cares about, if I can be overly simplistic, he cares about you having a lawn that is healthy in your front yard. You know, I mean, the point is, is it matters to you? It matters to him, right? He he cares about you having the uh, sporting equipment to do a good job of your child uh, in high school, uh, baseball team or whatever. These things are all, they all matter to him. And if we realized how big his heart was for us, we would position ourselves differently to be a people that served well, loved well, and believed for solutions for the simplest of things. And I think if we could embrace that as a lifestyle, realizing that if it matters to me, it matters to him, uh, it changes everything. I'll tell you, let me give you one example of this that may seem a little silly, but I was in a conference uh, with Bobby Connor, who is a wonderful friend, amazing prophet. Uh, love that guy so much. We were doing a conference together in the Midwest and uh, we had a a number of really amazing miracles, including leukemia was healed that week, uh, verified by the doctor. They took tests that week and there was no leukemia left and healed. And and if I'm going to choose my favorite miracle based on life or death, that's what I'm going to go for. (laughs) But the miracle that moved me the most was a woman who broke her little finger And when it healed, it healed crooked. But she had all movement, and she had zero pain. And she asked for it to be healed. Somebody prayed, and it straightened out. To me, it challenged me more. I I expect the leukemia to be healed. But why would it heal a finger that isn't in pain and has full use? It mattered to her. And it showed me more about the father. I expect the other, you know, he he's he's, he's crisis oriented. He knows what it is to step in, you know, at eleven fifty nine and and bring that miracle. I expect that, but why would he do that to a woman's little finger? That just rocked my world, and uh, as so I I've, I've got this thing working inside of me. It has for a number of years now that if it matters to me, it matters to him. I just need to yield to him to find out how he might bring a solution, maybe to the school board that somebody works on. Maybe it's It's uh, the end result of this pandemic. How do I adjust my business to prosper in the days ahead? And all these things matter to him more than they do to us. So I I think that's, that would be the third piece I would add.
1: I love that. That's so good. Well, hopefully everybody was listening, taking notes and uh, can, can keep those three potential barriers in mind. Grant, you look like you want to say something. I'll shut up.
0: I'm going to take a selfish moment here. Uh, As Ken alluded to, he was, that I was fanboying here. I'm a pastor, lead a church uh, here in Nashville. And I don't know if there's a Sunday that goes by that something that you've said isn't in my ears as I am, um, you know, leading. Uh, Even this past Sunday, I, I was, we were in this amazing moment in worship and I'll never forget you said something somewhere. I don't know where about you were, you were watching for a new worship leader to follow the presence. And that was just in my mind, um, this Sunday as I was doing the same thing. And, and, you know, we're always looking for, uh, for mentors and for people that are faithful, uh, and, and that it's, it's hard to find, uh, sometimes. And so I I would want to know selfishly for, for me and then for all of the other leaders and pastors that I know tune in uh, very regularly, um, if we could get coffee and you could give us, you know, one piece of advice, um, what, what would that be?
2: Well, uh, the question I'm asked uh, often, especially by our students, is if I could visit my 25-year-old self, what advice would I give me? So if I can retranslate that, what, there you what, go. <laughs> what, what I would do to my 25-year-old self is I would say, don't be so hard on yourself. I was so hungry for more of God that I was very critical for what I didn't have instead of delight in what I did. And uh, I could have saved myself a a lot of pain uh, as a pastor, as a leader. And it was really uh, my hunger for more that drove me to discouragement, as weird as that sounds. Uh, Because what I was seeing in the pages of Scripture wasn't happening in front of my eyes. I had no explanation, except it must be my sin or the sin of the people or whatever. And, and, and instead of celebrating the, the graces that God had put on my life and as a church uh, body, instead of celebrating what he was doing, I seemed to live in this frustration for what wasn't happening. And... and uh, <clears throat> I would say what I'm hungry for, here's the deal. The Lord oftentimes answers our huge prayers in seed form. He gives me an acorn instead of the oak tree. And it's my proper stewardship of the small portion he gave me, readies me for the full-on answer. And if I could go back, and I would say to you as a, as a pastor or leader, just realize that oftentimes the Lord, in fact, most of the time, I think He answer, he gives me an acorn instead of an oak tree. And he is wanting me to grow with the with the acorn. He's wanting me to grow in the journey so that I can handle the weightiness of the glory of what I have prayed for. Because we know how to pray the big prayers. You know, we know what the Lord wants. He wants the glory of the Lord to cover the earth. He wants the, the kings of the earth, the nations of the earth to bow before him. These are, these are very clear in scripture. So we know how to pray the big prayers, but how do we steward the moment that we're in that can take us to the fulfillment of that big prayer. And uh, so anyway, uh, you know Jesus illustrated this with the story of the minus, you know, the, the guys were considering <laughs> how is this military invasion of the Messiah going to take place? And Jesus, in response to what they were thinking, said a guy had minus, gave him to his servants and the guy, one guy increased it to 10 and the uh, Landowner said, now you're in charge of 10 cities. So what was their concern? It was citywide and national-wide transformation. And Jesus said, it's the way you handle the miner that prepares you to govern 10 cities. So if you want the influence of cities and nations, handle what's in your hand. Be a steward. Grow the acorn. So long answer to a short question, but that really is what I would say to myself, to you, to so many other leaders, is expose yourself to the right stuff. Keep the hunger alive but realize the tenderness of the moment he's given you and how beautiful it is.
0: That's awesome. Thank
2: you. Thanks. Yeah, You're welcome. It's an honor. Bless you, Grant. Good to meet you, too. You too. Yeah, thanks.
1: Bill, thanks for joining us. Um, I just want to bless you as as we sign off. Do you want to just quickly pray for our listeners and we'll call call it a day?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Father, we're, we're overwhelmed by the privilege of calling you Father. And we do pray it. Our Father, who Lord in heaven, I pray that you would so enlighten the hearts of every viewer, every person watching this, the whole families involved, that you would so enlighten our hearts to hope and to what you have in store for us in this hour that we would never again be imprisoned by the things that are wrong that have gone on around us, but instead rise with contagious hope. I pray for that. I pray that you'd invade the dream life. You'd invade the thought life of the people watching and that you'd reveal to us your ways. And that as you mark our lives with your favor and blessing, that we would be able to say in Psalm 67, that nations turn to you as a result. I pray for this in the honor of the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 So good to see you, Ken.
1: Yeah, so good to see you. I guess maybe I'll see you next week too when I'm up there for the Heaven and Business Conference.
2: I look forward to it. All right. I look yeah, well, bless you bunch. God bless you.
0: Bye. Bill, thank you so much for joining us. Ken, thank you for joining us. And thank you all for tuning in for another episode of God is Not a Theory with Ken Fish. We'll be right back here next week with a fresh episode. Until then, we'll see you soon. Is not a theory is a podcast of Orbis Ministries. For more information about Orbis Ministries, go to Orbis Ministries.org. If you have questions you'd like to have Ken answer on the podcast, please send us an email to podcast at orbisministries.org. Thanks for listening. Hi everyone, it's Julia with Orbis Ministries. I just wanted to let you know that if you'd like to learn more from Ken and connect with others in the Orbis community, you can download the Orbis Ministries app on your Apple or Android phone. On the app, you'll find a free teaching archive, the conference schedule, and an internal messaging community. A link to download the app can be found in your description. Thanks so much, God bless.